Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Have you ever watched an illusionist or a magician? Personally, I'm not as enthralled as many are by magicians. I mean, sure, they're very talented at making you believe something that isn't, but that's why I'm not overly entertained by them. I know it's an illusion, and I mostly just don't care how they did it. Admittedly, I'm likely in the minority on this, and I'm okay with that. This is kind of the same thing that we're seeing in the news that we're being constantly fed these days. They're telling us one thing, but with just a little picking and digging, we find that what we're being told is an illusion crafted to make us believe what they want us to believe. On today's episode, we're going to see how we're not responsible for our actions, and then we'll have to cheat certain doom once again, and finally we'll address one of the biggest illusions being perpetrated on the American people today. So, grab a tourniquet. Get that hula hoop social distancing belt back out of the closet and get ready to have your eyes open because abracadabra, here we go. Have you ever tripped, not necessarily fallen, just tripped walking through the store or wherever? Have you ever wiped out walking on a hill or flat out lost it on a patch of ice? Now, once you've regained your footing, what's the first thing you do? Uh Uh-huh, that's right. You look around to see if anyone saw you. And then the second thing you do? Uh, usually you look back to see what just tried to kill you. Have you ever busted your head on that stupid exhaust thingy above the stove? Or an open cabinet door? Have you ever busted your knuckles tightening a bolt? What are you mad at? I, I guarantee it's not yourself. You're mad at the object that did nothing wrong. Why do we look around? Why do we look back at the ground? Why do we get mad at an inanimate object? Well, when you come right down to it, pride right? Am I wrong here? We do not want to be the cause of our issue. Someone or something else must be at fault. It's the stupid sidewalk or the stupid snow. It's that piece of garbage tool or that good-for-nothing door, right? I mean, it can't be me. Now, when you combine our stupidity, carelessness, and attentiveness, or what have you, with a litigious society, mix in the absence of loser-pay laws, especially with the perception of entities with deep pockets— we have the makings of a sue-happy society. Now, if you slide down your own hill, bruising your pride in the process, obviously you're not suing yourself. At least least I hope you're not. But if you trip on a public sidewalk, or if you use the tool improperly that's clearly manufactured by a company that just doesn't care, well, if you're the right kind of person, it's time to get out your sacks with the dollar signs because someone needs to be filling those suckers up. And that brings us to our article, found on WSAZ.com, headline, Graphic! Man suing Lowe's after losing part of finger in gardening tool incident. Now, this is a pretty straightforward article, but uh, it's pretty informative when you think about it, and it begs the question, what would you do? So let's jump in. Here's the gist of what happened. Oh, and by the way, let me encourage you to open the article, the link is in the notes, and watch the three-and-a-half-minute news story video. It's just well worth the price of admission. Uh, 
So one Mr. Mark Johnson, the horrifically disfigured, mutilated amputee in question, two years ago, now this is a current article, but this injury happened two years ago, was in a Lowe's with his son. Now, they don't say how old his son was, but they do quote the lawyer as saying, quote, while Mark's son was looking at some children's gardening supplies and Mark was looking at his products, he turned around to see his son with full-sized garden shears that were unguarded in his hand. And Mark, fearing for his son's safety, reached out to grab them and unfortunately, in the process of doing that, cut off part of his finger. So, to give you an idea here quickly, the lawyer, Mr. Wiley, looks like a Sherman. Think of Sherman and Mr. Peabody, that cartoon. He's complete with bow tie, and he kind of sounds like you'd expect him to sound. Now, Mr. Johnson picks up the horrifying nightmare from there. Quote, I pulled my hand back, and he closed it right as I did that, and he snipped the end of my finger off. My finger fell to the ground. Well, he rushed to the emergency room, and they, quote, performed surgery to save what was left of his finger. And if that wasn't bad enough... His entire life is now forever changed. Quote, I would lay at night thinking, what if it took the whole finger? What if it took four fingers? What if it took my hand? What if it hit my wrist? I just keep playing it over and over in my head. Poindexter, I, I mean, Mr. Wiley, lawyer extraordinaire, said, quote, this could have been a catastrophic incident where Mark's son could have seriously injured or killed himself. So, of course, they're suing Lowe's and the manufacturer, Fiskers, because they obviously just want to kill people. The problem, according to the Wonder Twins, is that Fiskers doesn't put a protective sheath or even a zip tie on the shears to keep them closed and safe. And Lowe's just displays them on the floor, surrounded by candy and balloons and clowns and fluffy bunnies with a looping soundtrack of, Hey, kids, come over here! I might have embellished some of that slightly. As of now, both Lowe's and Fiskers have denied liability because, uh, because they're right. And to the shock and horror of Mr. Johnson and Mr. Wiley, who probably has a case of the vapors, Lowe's still has their mutilation and disfigurement tools in the exact same display in the exact same location. And let me tell you, the bodies of the young and the old and the body parts are just stacked up around there. Trails of blood leading out the front door where masses of humanity have run or crawled out of the store with their bloody nubs and stumps, hoping to find some sort of medical care before they bleed out. I mean, the carnage is... It's, it's, just, it's just too horrific to think about. Don't think about it. Stop. Just stop thinking about it. Okay. Now... From the video and from the story, let me tell you what they're not talking about, and let's see if you picked out some of the things I did, and let's do a little reading between the lines on some of this, as it's uh, it's pretty easy to do. So first of all, how bad was the actual amputation? Well, the video showed a blurred-out, zoomed-up photo of a bloody finger. Couldn't really tell much there, but then they showed the x-ray. So take your ring finger, look at the very top of your finger, then draw a line from the tip, the, the middle of the tip of your finger down and toward the side of your finger, where that line just nips the very tip of the bone. So what he really had nipped off was what I would call the top corner of his finger. Now, painful to be sure, I'm not arguing that at all, but I'm not sure this reaches the level of drama that it's being given. Now, the video of Mr. Johnson inside the news report video was apparently his interview with the law offices. 
There wasn't a timestamp, and a date wasn't given. But this had to have been at least a number of months after the incident, as Mr. Johnson, well, he's a hand talker, so his hands, both of them, were waving around quite a bit. I understand. I was able to pause the video in a few spots, and I could not tell which hand had the injury. Now, from the bloody, blurred photo, I believe that this was his left hand. Now, by pausing the video of, of his interview, I got two very clear shots, one of each ring finger, and neither finger looks disfigured in any way. Neither finger has a wrapping or a stint or a bandage. In fact, you can clearly see that the fingernail is whole and intact on both of his ring fingers. So I guess that extensive surgery to, quote, save what was left of his finger amounted to sewing that top corner back on. Do you see what I mean about the drama? I mean, quote, save what was left of his finger. Really? They make it sound like he had a ragged skin flap and a shattered bone stub and nerves just dangling everywhere. I also noticed that on his left hand, on the upper part of his middle finger, Mr. Johnson, <laughs> Mr. Johnson had a Band-Aid. See, one incident is a data point. Two incidents is the start of a pattern. It almost appears that Mr. Johnson has a developing pattern of injuring his fingers. Maybe some advice Mr. Johnson could desperately use is uh, just keep your finger out of there. Now, see, I'll be honest. I, I saw that Band-Aid on his middle finger, and I, and I laughed and laughed. I mean, you're starting to lose credibility here, dude. Okay, moving past the video, let's look at his words. He was in Lowe's with apparently a child young enough that he was looking at children's garden tools. Now, to me, that's no older than what? Maybe seven or eight years old, and very likely younger than that. And that's fine. I've had my kid in plenty of hardware and big box stores when she was little. But what does Mr. Wiley, super lawyer, say next? Quote, he turned around to see his son. Well, that means that old Pop wasn't paying attention now, was he? He apparently didn't say or won't admit to saying that he saw the loppers at ground level. He didn't say or admit to telling the child to not touch anything. And then from his very words, he turned his back to the child long enough for the child to move from children's tools to shears that he picked up and opened. Now, this seems maybe just a little negligent, doesn't it? Then what do he and his bow-tied advocate say? Well, Mr. Johnson feared for his son's safety, so he tried to grab the shears and in the process got the tip of his finger nipped off. What does this tell us? Well, this tells us that his son wasn't in any danger whatsoever. Whether they're long-handled with short cutters or short-handled with long cutters, the kid couldn't have had them around his neck or his head or even his own fingers since he was clearly holding the handles, which is how he closed them, turning his father into a traumatized, disfigured freak of nature, enduring the scared looks of young children and the cutting remarks and laughter of the older children. Dad didn't say the kid was about to cut off his leg. From the way he described it, the kid had his hands on the handles and had opened the shears. In other words, the kid wasn't in any danger whatsoever. The dad freaked out. That's what happened. And who, in their right mind, would just try to grab any part of the shears? My guess is that he probably rushed at the kid while shouting, or at least raising his voice, and using absolutely no gray matter, reached out wildly for the shears. He had to reach for the blades, as there's no other way he could have caught his finger in there. Now, every child is different, but I'm guessing if Daddy-O had been firm of voice, calmly reached for the hands of the child or the handles of the shears, everything would have been fine. But Mr. Johnson panicked, for absolutely no reason, 
and cause the child to panic. And then he talks about how he had his night terrors, right? What if he had taken the finger or four fingers or his whole hand? What if it had hit the wrist? So look, meat and skin is a lot softer than bone. And and sure, these are meant to go through relatively small branches. So in theory, his young son might have had enough levers to take off a finger. But what kind of powerhouse of a toddler does he have that could have sheared his way through all four fingers or his entire wrist? It's a lot of drama here. The bottom line is that dad wasn't paying attention to his kid. Dad freaked out for no reason, which, come on, dads are not supposed to freak out. The fact that he panicked like this, it just annoys me to no end. I mean, come on, man up. Dad freaked the kid out as he lunged for him and dad put his own safety in jeopardy because of his brainless actions. The child was never in danger. Not one bit. So, why exactly are dad and babyface lawyer suing? Well, they say that it's to keep other people safe, but I chalk it up to pride and greed or covetousness. You've got two very large companies with uh, deep pockets. Even a settlement to just go away would at least be lucrative for the lawyer and the dad. And this dad, I just get the feeling that either this dad had his pride damaged because he knows he acted stupidly, so he's trying to save face by over-dramatizing what we all know actually happened. Or this is just who he is, a drama king, a Ken, you know, the male equivalent of a Karen. Both of those options, eh, they both make me sad. So as I try to do, let's try to see this from a biblical lens. We know per one of them their commandments that uh, coveting is a bad thing, a sin in fact. But we live in a society that for a few hundred or a few thousand dollars, you can pretty much sue anyone you want for anything you want hoping to strike it rich. And if you're wrong, if you're a liar, if you have no case, that's fine. You're just out a bit of money. But that's it. Move on to the next traumatic act, clearly the fault of another large corporation, and try again. This is just the lottery of the legal system for some of the general population and also some lawyers. I don't know what this guy is suing for. Let's say he wants a million dollars. And this is completely hypothetical. Like I said, I have no idea. But if the penalty of him losing is that he has to pay them a million dollars, would he have really taken out this lawsuit? I mean, you and I both know that he knows and that his lawyer knows this is a stupid case. Just trying to see if they could take some of that sweet, sweet cash that they've decided should be theirs. There are legitimate lawsuits. This isn't one of them. The sin of coveting your neighbor's things, neighbor being anyone that's not you, things being anything or anyone that's not owned by you or vowed to you, is prevalent. And we've all been guilty of it from time to time. Now, per Paul in 1 Corinthians, if both parties were Christians, they should not be taking each other to court, not unless all means of reconciliation through the church has been exhausted and there is still an injustice that needs to be corrected. This is one of those parts of the Bible that most Christians have just kind of decided doesn't really apply today. I mean, how could Paul have known, right? Assuming that at least one, if not all three parties are non-Christians, well, Lawsuits will happen, although again, this should really be a last resort. But as I said, when you combine unsaved individuals, a lopsided legal system, stacks of cash, and covetousness, this is what you get. And this stems from what I think is the bigger problem, a man that is unwilling to take personal responsibility. I think most of us have hurt ourselves by doing something stupid. We've all probably hurt ourselves by doing something stupid with something that was made by a company of some sort. I would guess that most of us have not sued the manufacturer of the thing we did something stupid with. That said, you and I are a small subset of what appears to be an increasing population of people that are refusing to grow up and take personal responsibility. 
This could be a character flaw or something we were never taught, or it could be that our pride simply will not allow us to admit that we could have done something wrong. The Bible has nothing good to say about pride, but I'm sure you know that already, right? Proverbs tells us that pride comes before disgrace. Pride comes before destruction. Pride will bring a person low. Pride, arrogance, and violence are all associated with other. It's not easy to swallow our pride. We all know that. I know that. But that doesn't make it good. Doesn't make it right. We know that Satan was created full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. We know that he felt that he could do the job of God better than God. That's pride. We know that Adam and Eve were tempted with pride to be like God. I mean, why would God keep that from them? That's not fair. And then we see that this sin quickly turned into passing the buck. Adam blamed Eve and God. Eve blamed the serpent. See, pride results in our refusing to take responsibility. This man and his ambulance chaser of choice have decided that the fault lies with anyone and everyone but the man himself. Learning to take responsibility, to eschew excuses, to admit when you're wrong, that used to be part of growing up, or at least it was supposed to be. The Bible tells us that what we sow, we will reap. If we play stupid games, we're going to win stupid prizes. We see this well displayed in books like Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and so on. The Israelites made their choices, and then consequences came. Now, eventually, they took responsibility and repented, but it took quite some time, every single time. Then we see examples like David, his adultery with Bathsheba, or Jonah and his running away from God. They eventually took responsibility, but it was after they were caught. David, being confronted by Nathan, the casting of lots on the boat with Jonah. Cain never did really take responsibility for killing his brother. He gave a snarky answer to God, then complained that he was being punished too severely. And how does that interaction end for Cain? By him going away from the presence of the Lord. And then his family line included another murderer, and then they were all snuffed out in the flood. So, if you don't take responsibility for your actions, you and your entire family line will drown in a global flood. That's what we can take from this. <laughs> now, that's not right, but we literally never see an example of someone trying to pass the buck in the Bible where things work out well. Ultimately, we see this pride, this arrogance, this refusal to take responsibility in the words of Jesus speaking of the end times. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They did what they thought was their part, but their pride never allowed them to bend the knee to their Lord. And then faced with their eternity, they offer excuses. And just like Cain, they will argue that the punishment is too great, and then they will depart the presence of the Lord, of sorts. Sadly, Mr. Johnson has, and is displaying for his son and whoever else, that the responsibility lies with others. Now, maybe this was what Mr. Johnson grew up with, maybe not, but his son will now have to overcome a fairly traumatic example of blame shifting in order to grow up and put off childish things and think and act like a man. For the non-Christian, there is literally no reason besides our general social contract, which these days is pretty weak, for anyone to put away their pride, forego the allure of someone else's riches and take responsibility for themselves. And that's exactly what we see in our country and the world today. For the Christian, we must be better than this. We must swallow our pride, repent to God and anyone we've crossed or hurt for our actions and our sins, 
take responsibility for ourselves and show others that Christians are different from the unsaved world. I remember when I started high school and took a typing class, which thank goodness I did as I've written about 400,000 words so far in less than a year of this podcast. I mean, that's it's a lot of hunting and pecking if you don't know how to type. Anyway, rabbit trail. When I first learned how to type at school, we had the Apple IIc computers. We would throw in our Fred Ryder five and a quarter inch floppy disk, let it run for a little bit, and then we would start typing and working on our typing and correcting our typing. It was great. Of course, the School Computer Lab had some educational-type games like Oregon Trail and Number Munchers, and the rest of us had some discs that we would copy games on for each other and pass around, like Moon Patrol or Karatika or some football game that was it was all text-based. You'd like choose a play, it would grind for a few seconds, and then it would tell you the result of your play. Don't judge me, it was fun at the time. Anyway, my senior year, we got an Apple Macintosh. Our lab was filled with Apple Macintosh computers. This computer, with probably an 8-inch diagonal gray monochrome screen, was the coolest thing ever. And do you know why? (laughs) Can you say mouse? Uh Uh-huh. Yep, it had an actual mouse. A single-button mouse. I bet. Some of you didn't even know the computer mouse's computer mice used to have only one button. Well, I got into college in the fall of 1995, and we had actual 486 Intel-based personal computers. A load of them in various computer labs. I mean, it was amazing, right? Color monitors, they were lightning fast at the time. They had built-in programs and the Internet. Oh, man, the Internet, a place of wonderful wonders and terrible temptations. Now, two years later, I bought my first computer from Gateway, and I never looked back. Now, I'll be honest. I love the Internet. I love the fact that you can look up anything, and it's on there. But there are downsides beyond just the obvious. For those of you that are Internet savvy or even those of you that are cable news watchers, which is really these days... Nothing more than the internet with a middleman editing what you see based on what they want you to see. Basically, do you ever wish we could go back to a time where we just we just didn't know? You know, we, we didn't know absolutely everything. Unfortunately, as much as we've all said that we're going to quit the internet or quit social media or turn off the news, almost none of us ever do. As a result, we find on websites like NDTV.com, headline, Costa 2, all you need to know about Russian bat virus that could infect humans. (sighs) So yeah, first of all, I read the headline correctly, I promise. They didn't put a the in front of Russian bat virus. Again, where are the editors for these sites? Maybe they wanted it to sound Russian, though. All you need to know about Russia and the bat virus. Look, I know, you do a Russian accent, all right? Now, how does my long, winding internet story tie into this, you ask? Well, a couple different reasons. One I'll get to at the end, but if it wasn't for the internet, neither you nor I would know anything about this. And that just seems like it it would be better or worse. I, I, I don't really know anymore. Anyway. It appears that neither the 
Omicron virus, the tuberculosis outbreak, the fear of meningitis, nor the ooey-gooey monkeypox virus has elicited enough fear to keep us all on the edge of our next lockdown. And trust me, they, meaning the elitists across the globe, want us locked down. It's not conspiracy. They literally want us to be working from home, isolated from others, and well-controlled. The World Economic Forum, or the WEF to you and me, published an article on their site on September 14th, so not that long ago, entitled My Carbon, an Approach for Inclusive and Sustainable Cities. Now, apparently My Carbon is a type of carbon credit platform where you have to buy carbon credits for your environmental sins or, or something. I'm not really going to look into it any further, maybe in the future. Anyway, in this article, they give three points. One of their points is, quote, COVID-19 was the test of social responsibility. Now, what terrifies me about that point of their outline is that it says it was the test, not a test. The test implies that what was done was planned, which I'll be honest, I have absolutely no doubt that it was. So, in this section of their article, they elaborate, quote, A huge number of unimaginable restrictions for public health were adopted by billions of citizens across the world. There were numerous examples globally of maintaining social distancing, wearing masks, mass vaccinations, and acceptance of contact tracing applications for public health, which demonstrated the core of individual social responsibility. Now, did you know that you were part of the test? Did you know that if you were compliant, you were in the desired demographic to prove that society will basically do pretty much what they're told? How much do you love that mask now, hmm? Anyway, although COVID, or more accurately, the fear porn that was shoved in our faces and down our throats and pretty much into every orifice of our bodies... And I'm not joking. Remember how China required anal swabs to test for COVID for foreigners for a time? Although the response to the mostly baseless fear porn had the desired effect, it's not holding up. The gains don't appear to be sustainable at this point, as globally the people are uh, pretty much done with COVID. Vaccinations with the old juice have died off. The new and improved, now with more blood-clotting, stroke-inducing, palsy-causing, heart-damaging powers than ever, bivalent shots of magic elixir have been widely ignored and panned. People, for the most part, have dropped the masks, and even Biden said that the, oh, the pandemic is over, which his team of Marxists quickly walked back add it to the list, because without the pandemic, they can't use our tax dollars to pay for other people's student loans. So we need to find something else. Something so terrifying. Something so horrific. Something that will make you stay inside, lock your doors, cover your faces, buy excessive amounts of toilet paper for some reason, and damn straight to Dante's ninth level of hell, those that dare suggest there are alternative ways to treat viral infections, or that what we're being told isn't the whole truth. And why invent the wheel, right? Just go back to the well. Dance with the one that brung you, basically, right? Bats and pangolins, raccoon dogs and palm civets and other tasty, tasty animals with their pesky viruses that could potentially jump to humans and wipe out all of humanity. Run to your basements. Do not come out until the environment is fixed. I, I mean, until full globalist control is established. I mean, until the virus is under control. It's for your own safety, you know. You don't want to kill grandma, right? 
<laughs> Here, let the government do it for you. So apparently, U.S. scientists have found another new virus in bats. And this may, of course, spell our doom. They say, quote, The new virus, called COSTA-2, cannot just infect human cells. It is also resistant to current vaccines. Now, can anyone tell me why this sentence should scare the knickers off of you? Nope, not that it can infect human cells, but because they've tested it against human cells. And apparently they've tested it against current vaccines. So how new is this virus? And why are they doing the exact same thing that the Wuhan lab was doing? You know, the gain-of-function research that that troll Fauci knew nothing about and definitely didn't know he was funding with our tax dollars? Next sentence, similar to the first, a little bit longer, a little bit worse. Quote, research published in the journal PLOS Pathogens... And let me break in here. Who doesn't get excited when your latest issue of PLOS Pathogen shows up? I mean, I personally love the centerfold of the virus of the month. Anyway, research published in the journal PLOS Pathogens says that the virus is resistant to the antibodies of people vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, reported Newsweek. Okay, who's got it? Who's got it? Yep, they've done research against human cells, against vaccines, and now against the antibodies of people that got the magic Fauci juice. I say again, how long has this been? And why are we doing this again? If you want another pandemic, this is how you get another pandemic. All right, well, we get our answer about how new this virus is. Apparently, it was discovered in 2020, but those that discovered it really didn't think much of it until they decided to test it against human cells. So this COSTA-2 is a Sarbicovirus. Odds are I'm saying that horribly wrong. Doesn't really matter. It's the same sort of virus as COVID-19 and the common cold, a subgroup of coronavirus. This becomes important in just a moment. The author of the study, Michael Letko, and he should really let go of doing this study. Sorry, that was terrible. Said that people vaccinated against COVID-19 can't stop the virus, which we knew, and neither can those that have recovered from Omicron. So they've also tested it against antibodies of those that have had Omicron. Okay, this needs to stop. But it's okay, apparently. This can't really cause serious disease in people. But it could change if it gets mixed with genes of SARS-CoV-2. And I don't know about you, but that just tells me They've done this. They've already done this. They've mixed it with SARS-CoV-2 and tested it. Again, this is gain of function. They're working in the lab to make viruses that can't hurt us able to hurt us. Letko went on to say, quote, Right now, there are groups trying to come up with a vaccine that doesn't just protect against the next variant of SARS-2, but actually protects us against the SARS-CoV-virus in general. Unfortunately, Many of our current vaccines are designed for specific viruses we know infect human cells or those that seem to pose the biggest risk to infect us. But that's a list that's ever-changing. We need to broaden the design of these vaccines to protect against all Sarbicoviruses. Do we, Michael? Do, Do we need to do that? Why? Is it because you're playing in God's domain, doing things you shouldn't be doing? doing things that are, in fact, illegal. See what I meant when I said Sarbicovirus being a subgroup of coronavirus was important? <sighs> now, this is the end of the article, except for 
After an ad in the article, there's one more little header. Quote, known cases around the world. And then a single sentence after that header. Quote, the virus lacks some of the genes believed to be involved in pathogenesis that is developing into a disease in humans. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. What was that last bit? So it's not really dangerous to humans. It's not actually seen in humans. And it doesn't really have the genes needed to cause human disease. Then what are we doing here? Combine that with the fact that they've tested it directly against human cells, human antibodies of those that took the so-called vax, human antibodies of those that recover from Omicron, and all vaccines, and it sure sounds to me like they've done some studies of what happens if Costa and COVID get together and get it on and make babies. I ask again, what exactly are we doing here? So viruses have been around since creation. I don't know what viruses. I don't know how many viruses. I don't know why or what purposes they served. But creation ended on day six. So viruses, bacteria, mosquitoes, lice, etc., all of that had to be created already. Now, once sin entered the world fairly early on in our history, although we don't know exactly when, the interaction with humans, the mission of these things changed. Now, I'd assume that with a perfect immune system, neither Adam nor Eve were affected, or probably nobody for a number of generations, but as the viruses evolved, still a virus, just change within the kind, that happens all the time, and as our immune systems, man and animal, started to glitch, these viruses started finding footholds and breeding grounds, and now here we are today. And so the question is, should we be doing this? See, from an evolutionary standpoint, we all came from the same rock slime ignited to life by the lightning strike or some other such similar fairy tale. So since you and I are related to monkeys and bats and bananas and house plants and pigs and mice and everything in all of you know, creation, it would stand to their line of reasoning that if a virus exists, eventually we'll get it. So let's help the evolution along, force it to infect humans, then we can figure out how to stop it. I mean, it kind of makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint. It really kind of does. Sadly, this is not done, as all science started out as, because of their fear of a sovereign, omnipotent creator God. This is done out of a vapid, empty, evolution-fueled fear of death. Now, in Matthew 10.28, we read the words of Jesus. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, although not talking about viruses in this specific context, can it not directly apply? If scientists were more focused on unlocking the mysteries of their creator, trying to figure out how all of this creation works in order to more intricately display God's handiwork, rather than trying to run away from and inject against death, can you imagine the impact on the unbelieving world? Sadly, we saw a lot of fear of death from both Christians and lost with the COVID pandemic. I'll be honest, I have a fear of dying. I don't want to die. And I'm not a fan of death in general. I mean, it's kind of creepy, isn't it? But I'm not afraid of death. My death. The, the process could potentially be not fun, but the end result, at least for me, will be utterly, unspeakably amazing. I'm not saying that we should have been out there, you know, licking doorknobs and tempting God, but Christians need to be able to learn, evaluate, reason, and push back on the lies and the fear-mongering. 
We should be the sane, calm, level-headed, reasonable people in any and every situation. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind, right? I don't know what will become of this Costa 2 virus or whatever Costa COVID hybrid they're brewing up in some backyard lab somewhere, and I don't know if we'll ever hear about this one again. But I know that this isn't the last we'll hear of something like this. With the internet age and the 24-hour news age, we will hear constant stories that are meant to evoke an emotion, mainly fear these days, and the stories we read and hear are released with a purpose, and they're phrased with a purpose, and we, my fellow Christians, must be aware of this. We must not be the people that run out and panic by a cartload of toilet paper in a hazmat suit. We must be those that take everything back to the Bible, evaluate the world through a biblical worldview, with the full understanding that God is in control of every single atom, past, present, and future. The lost world will continue to find ways to destroy ourselves. That's what they do. To the environmentalists, man is the true virus that needs to be eliminated. To the power-hungry, man is nothing but livestock to be used, used up and then discarded. To the scientist, man is nothing but a cosmic accident. To the politician, man is just a number of demographics, some of which can be persuaded to grant them power. And the list goes on. But to the Christian... We know that man is a special, unique creation, made in the image of God. We know that man is an eternal being, with the time on this earth being but a blip on our eternal radar. We know that man has only one of two ultimate eternal destinations, and that it's our job to get the word out to the lost world as to the eternal choice every one of them needs to make. And we know that the lost world is scared. They don't have the answers to the ultimate questions. They don't know what happens when their eyes close for the final time. And because of this fear, man will run to whoever the strongest man is or whoever offers them the answers they seek. It's up to us to give them the true answers, regardless of if they accept them or not, or even pause to listen. These stories, only written to cause fear, to retain control, this is where you and I need to thrive and show the world that we're different. One last quick story. During the time of the Black Plague in Europe, much of the population ran from the plague. They locked themselves in their houses, distrusted their fellow man, refused to help for fear of death. The Christians, the priests, went from house to house, caring for the sick and dying, listening to confessions, giving last rites, etc. They're the ones that went to the hospitals and helped the medical personnel care for these people. The mortality rate of the priesthood was about 45%, which was much higher than the general population. They had a duty to do. They felt that this was their call from God at that time. They showed that they were different, that they were not afraid of death. Now, setting aside the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism, they had a belief in an all-powerful God, in salvation, although with many flaws in that belief, and they correctly knew that this earth was just a temporary home. They were different. We, too, in our time, need to be different. Let's see. The Constitution. Where were we? Ah, yes, the beginning. Welcome back to the American Genesis, looking at the Constitution. When last we met, we talked about prayer. 
Although not all the founders were Christians, it appears that most, if not all, basically believed in a higher power and generally followed what we would call biblical morals. Whether they all believed or not, they understood the importance of prayer to the God of creation. After kicking off the Constitutional Convention, the members proceeded to argue and bicker and basically reached an impasse before they even got started. And that's when Benjamin Franklin proposed the idea of paying a member of clergy to basically be the shepherd of the convention, starting each morning with prayer at the very least, as well as other things. This idea was not adopted, but a week later, on July 4th, 1787, George Washington, the president of the convention, led the entire group to the Reformed Lutheran Church to hear a sermon, and then lead them in prayer, after which they went back to the Pennsylvania State House to get to work and what work they did. So let's begin with the preamble. We read, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Typically, when we read this, we read the first bit kind of like this. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, etc., etc., we set up the what as to establish a more perfect union, and then the list after that as the how we're going to do it. I don't believe that's how it's supposed to be read. They had a union under the Articles of Confederation, but it wasn't perfect. It was far from perfect. It needed a lot of work. So this new constitution, written by a select group of men, ratified by others, if adopted, would be a social contract agreed to by all citizens. So really, it was... We, the people of the United States, want to do these things, and we're submitting our best effort to do these, one of those things in the list being to make the union that they established better, to move it closer to perfect. I mean, this is not a huge deal, I might be wrong, but it appears to me that forming a more perfect union is just one of their goals, just as establishing justice was. Think of it like this. We, the people of the United States, in order to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, form a more perfect union, and so forth. Now, the preamble was written at the end of the convention after the drafting of the Articles of the Constitution. So it wasn't written as a blueprint to create the Constitution. This wasn't their outline that they established before they got started. It was really a summary of what they had just written. Now, either way, these were the goals, basically, that the convention had, and they felt that what they had written here accomplished these goals. So what were the goals? Well, to establish a more cohesive union, to be a country made of states rather than a bunch of states agreeing to be a country. They wanted to define a judicial structure, which was largely missing in the articles, and what was there was really cumbersome. They wanted to set up a system that would keep the peace internally, among people, among the states. This was heavily detailed in the articles, but for very specific situations only, not in general broad terms. They wanted for the people to have the chance to live a better life, to be given the chance to succeed, to be part of the country, to be citizens of value and worth, to have ownership in their country, not just be subjects or serfs. And they wanted to be truly free. And more importantly, to establish a system that would allow future generations, for as long as God allowed, to be free also, to not be subject to tyranny or a feudal system ever again. You know, just 
Those few things. <laughs> Easy peasy. Forget that this was something never done or seen in history, at least nothing even remotely close to this. I mean, sure, some civilizations had bits and pieces of this document that they were doing already, but nowhere were the parts and pieces collected and applied all together like this. Yeah, what they were setting out to do was really, uh, eh, is no big deal, <laughs> right? Now, from the preamble, we move into the articles. There are seven articles, 24 sections within those seven articles. The breakdown of the articles is as follows. Article 1 is the legislative branch. Article 2 is the executive branch. Article 3 is the judicial branch. Article 4 is state-specific type information. Article 5 is the process for amending the Constitution. Article 6 is the authority of this Constitution. And Article 7 was kind of the mop-up, it looks like. Rules for ratification, a little bit of cleanup, some clarification of a few things. Now, Article 1 being the first article to read, and yes, I did consider going the route of the Book of Armaments, detailing the use of the Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch with the numbering of the first article, but I decided not to. If you know, you know. Article 1 details the legislative branch. This is the most extensive of the articles, being comprised of 10 sections. This will take us a few episodes to get through, but let's start and see where we get. So we read. Section 1. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. Okay, well this is new, right? A two-tiered legislative branch. Remember, in the Articles, and actually prior to even declaring independence, they had just the Congress, which of, of course was was assembled. But now they're going with a two-tiered setup. This was done for a very specific reason, which has been somewhat watered down thanks to the 17th Amendment, but we'll get to that in time. Section 2. The House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states, and the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature. No person shall be a representative who shall not have attained to the age of 25 years and been seven years a citizen of the United States and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state in which he shall be chosen. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. The actual enumeration shall be made within three years after the first meeting of the Congress of the United States, and within every subsequent term of ten years, in such manner as they shall by law direct. The number of representatives shall not exceed one for every thirty thousand, but each state shall have at least one representative, and until such enumeration shall be made, the state of New Hampshire shall be entitled to choose three, Massachusetts, eight, Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, one, Connecticut, five, New York, six, New Jersey, four, Pennsylvania, eight, Delaware, one, Maryland, six, Virginia, ten, North Carolina, five, South Carolina, five, and Georgia, three. When vacancies happen in the representation from any state, the executive authority thereof shall issue writs of election to fill such vacancies. 
The House of Representatives shall choose their Speaker and other officers and shall have the sole power of impeachment. Okay, so let's hit a few of these specifics and then we'll cover one of the most controversial and definitely the most misunderstood and misused clauses in the Constitution. First, the qualifications. 25 years or older, a citizen of the United States for seven years, and a resident of the state you're running to be the representative of. Second, jumping to the end, they have the sole power to bring articles of impeachment of the president, who is yet to be defined in the articles. This system has worked well for many years. Only recently, as we are becoming less united and more partisan, has it been abused. Unfortunately, the unwritten rules of our federal government of not harassing or harassing current or past officials over everything they did or do or said or say, and thus becoming like so many third world unstable anarchist type countries, has started to crumble. This doesn't and shouldn't include actual crimes, of course, but the power of impeachment has been woefully abused as of late. My hope is that we get back to acting like the civilized country we once were. (laughs) Moving on. Next, what is the point of the House of Representatives? Well, these were individuals that were directly elected by the people via the Electoral College system, which will be outlined in Article 2, and were set up to directly represent the interests of the people at the federal level. You may find it interesting that the number of reps were to be set at no more than 30,000 people for every one representative. This was actually argued in the convention, with the starting value set at 40,000, but George Washington was insistent that that was too large of a number. He wanted each representative to have a relationship with those he represented. For those of you trying to do the math in your heads, that would equate to about 11,000 representatives today. So, to steal a line from the classic movie Jaws, (laughs) we're going to need a bigger house. Now, obviously, we don't have 11,000 representatives today, We have 435. So why is that? Well, obviously, as the country grew, the number of representatives was going to grow out of control. Side note, as you read through the Constitution, you find that like the Articles of Confederation, there were certain things that were written that specifically applied to the time at hand, but at the same time set up the system to be used into the future, now nearing 250 years. So... Long story short, in 1911, the Apportionment Act went into effect that capped the number of representatives at 435. They actually hadn't yet reached that number, but they had gone from 65 to 391, and they could see the direction things were going, and actually by that time had moved from 30,000 citizens per representative to about 210,000 citizens per rep. So starting in 1913, the cap was set at 435 representatives. In fact, apportionment acts were passed by Congress after every census starting in 1792 to set the number of representatives. This fairly quickly moved away from one for every 30,000 to one for every 34,000. And now that the number was capped in 1911 to 435, we're currently at about one representative for every 760,000 people. Remember, these are the people that are supposed to represent we the people directly at the federal level. This is why you see so much gerrymandering when setting up congressional districts. I mean, yes, this is politically motivated so as to try to force an outcome by placing your borders around like-minded people. But then again, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Since a, a single representative is supposed to represent the will of the people, it's a lot harder to do that if we just 
draw a box around three quarters of a million people and have one person of one political persuasion represent them. Unfortunately, political party platform dominates voting for what's best for the people you're supposed to represent. That said, it's a system that's essentially worked for this long, and and looking at other systems in the world, I'm not sure that there's a better answer. But can you imagine a House session with 11,000 members, though? That would be, uh, well, it would be something, that's, that's for sure. All right, let's end this episode with this. The controversial clause, as part of the counting of people to determine how many representatives each state would get, we read, quote, shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. So population would be counted by adding the number of free citizens, which included people under things like indentured servitude or similar, not counting the Indians that weren't part of our system, as denoted by taxation, and then three-fifths of all other persons. This is the infamous three-fifths clause where the racist founders said that a black man wasn't worthy of being considered a whole man, they're only worth 60% of a white man. Yeah, this is what the liberal leftists and the race baiters want you to think. It's true that slaves, black, white, or whatever, although yes, we all know that slavery in the United States is primarily black, it's true that they were counted as three-fifths of a person. But why? Well, as the discussion of how many representatives each state should have progressed, an argument between the slave state convention reps and the free state convention reps ensued. The slave states wanted to have each slave counted as a person, knowing full well that would increase their number of representatives massively. The free state reps didn't want any slaves counted because they knew that they would be massively outvoted by the slave states on everything that came up for a vote in the House. The problem the slave states had is the same problem liberals, and yes, the slaveholders and those that oppose civil rights have always been those on the left of the political spectrum and still are today. The problem is that they get caught in their own illogical, contradictory mess. They did not want slaves to be considered human persons, because that would call into question why they were enslaving humans, so they called them property. But for the topic of representation, they wanted them to be considered people. Well, the free state reps said that that was fine. But if they get to count their self-described property as people, well, then the free states get to do it too, so they'd count their livestock. Well, the free states had a massive amount of livestock, where the slave states had a lot of slaves to work the plantations, but would have been dwarfed by the herds of animals in the free states. So caught in their own devices, they knew they couldn't get away with it. At the same time, the free states, the convention, knew that they'd never win the battle of not counting slaves because the slave states would never ratify the Constitution, and that would threaten a still young and fairly fragile country. Additionally, the free state reps knew that if slaves were counted as people due to the overrepresentation of these slave states in Congress, pro-slavery positions would dominate the House. The slave states knew that if slaves weren't counted, the free states would dominate the House and anti-slavery positions would be ushered through with no opposition. As the country was in no position for a number of reasons to fight a battle on slavery at that time, the compromise was made to count the slave population at three-fifths of the total. 
This placated the slave state reps and the free state reps, having faith in humanity that the people would wake up over time to the fact that slavery is wrong, migrating away from the slave states, set up a system of counting that would gradually pull power away from the slave states at the federal level, allowing for the legislative action of making slavery illegal in the country a natural course of action. Now, we never quite got there as the natural flow was interrupted by the Civil War, but the trend was in the right direction. This compromise had nothing to do with the value of a human, slave or free. It had to do with representation in the House of Representatives and the balance of power between the slave and free states. Now, today it's distorted to make people believe that the founders were racist, but this is exactly opposite to the truth. The founders in the convention fought to put in place a fairly ingenious system to eliminate slavery over time while not fracturing the country that they hoped would be the beacon of liberty for mankind. So next time one of your liberal friends starts spouting off about the three-fifths clause, now you can correct that person, as I guarantee they know nothing more than what the mainstream government media has told them. But you know the truth. And that seems like a good place to stop for this episode of The American Genesis. My hope is that you're walking away from these with just a little more knowledge, a little more insight and curiosity, a little more appreciation of those that sought the guidance of God, of the creator, owner, and supreme judge of this creation. There are those that are trying as hard as they can to demonize the founders, with the thought that if they can make people believe the founders were evil, we'll then believe the system is evil and then they can open it up to do whatever they want with it. I don't know what God's will is for this country, but we should be calling on God for mercy and revival, and working to ensure that those that want to see the destruction of this country aren't allowed to make that happen. Not to us, and definitely not to our posterity. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast.outlook.com or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.